We'll hear argument next in number 02-516, Jennifer Gratz and Patrick Hamaker versus Lee Bollinger. Mr. Kobo. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Jennifer Gratz and Patrick Hamaker were denied admission to the University of Michigan's flagship undergraduate institution, the College of Literature and Science and the Arts, under, an admissions, under admissions policies that facially and flagrantly discriminated on the basis of race. The history of their case and of the university's defense of its discriminatory admissions policies is a powerful argument about the perils of entrusting to the discretionary judgments of educators the protection of the Constitution's guarantee of equality to all individuals. For nearly five years, the university vigorously defended in the district court and the court of appeals the admission systems that were in place when petitioners Gratz and Hamaker applied. These systems featured separate admissions guidelines for different races, protected or reserved seats in the class for select minorities, that is, blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans, racially segregated wait lists, and a policy of never automatically rejecting students from, their preferred minor, from, from the preferred minority groups while doing so for others. Mr. Oh. Mr. Kobo, as a preliminary matter, would you address the question of whether um, the named plaintiff, Patrick Hamaker, has standing uh, in this case? Um, he was denied admission, I think, in 1997. Correct, Your Honor. And he claimed that um, he intended to apply to transfer to the University of Michigan from wherever he was going to school. And yet the transfer admissions policy, I guess, isn't before us. The transfer admissions policy itself is not before your no. court, Your Honor, but the policy is essentially the same with respect to the consideration of race. And the court did, we did certify a class in this case with respect to Mr. Hamaker uh, in, uh, I believe it was December of 1998. Uh, we moved for class certification, and the district court granted that certification. Uh, and as a result of that, of course, anything, with respect, anything that's happened with respect to Mr. Hamaker subsequent to that time, it seems to us, is not relevant to the consideration of standing. Are you sure the transfer policy is the same as the admissions policy for new freshmen? Well, it's not exactly the same. I didn't find any such finding, and there was some little material in the record that gave me a different thought about it. The transfer policy considers race, Your Honor. I know it considered race, it, it, but not in precisely the same way. Not in precisely the same way. And the Court, there, there is nothing — it may be perhaps included in parts of the appendix materials, but uh, the district court did not address the issue of, of the transfer policy and, and Mr. Hamaker's uh, potential for transferring under the policy. Well, there's nothing, I take it, if Mr. Hamaker prevails on the transfer policy, there's nothing in his prevailing that would hurt any other class member? Nothing at all, Mr. Chief Justice. It's no. not a, okay. No. If Mr. Hamaker prevails, then the rights of many thousands of others will have been vindicated and they'll be able to compete under a non-discriminatory system. Of course, that would be true even if he doesn't have standing. 
That's true. Well, Your Honor, they would not be able to compete under a non-discriminatory system unless this particular system is struck down. I understand if it's struck down, but that, that begs the question of whether the named plaintiff has standing to represent a class of people who want to get into the freshman class. He wants to get in as a transferee student. I mean, I, it, maybe they're standing, but the mere fact that if he wins, everybody will benefit certainly doesn't speak to the question whether he has standing. No, Your Honor, but we, we do believe that because the fundamental — the transfer policy and the uh, original admissions policy are fundamentally the same in the respect that they both consider race in the admissions process in a way that is discriminatory. And we believe that — Therefore, if you're right that any consideration of a race is enough to condemn the program, then he would have standing. But if it, re- if it requires analysis of the particular components of the policy, then we ought to know whether the transfer policy is the same as the original policy. That would be true, Your Honor, if the case were decided strictly on the issue of narrow tailoring. Uh, but my understanding is that the university — uh, considers race for a purpose to achieve uh, a diversity that we believe is not compelling. And if that is struck down as a rationale, uh, then the law would be the same with respect to the transfer policy as with respect to the original admissions policy, Your Honor. Well, he has standing to challenge. That's, uh, that seems clear. But the, uh, depending on the rationale that the Court adopts, if it finds, uh, if it finds the program uh, unacceptable, uh, he may not be entitled to relief. He would be, it seems to me, perhaps, Your Honor, entitled to relief for damages. He's, he's not at this point seeking to be admitted to the university. He's graduated with the passage of time. It's been five-plus years since this suit was filed. Mr. Hammerker has attended and graduated elsewhere. Uh, it seems to me he would be entitled to damages. And the Court agreed with him as far as the program that was in place when he applied. The Court, I thought, held that program unconstitutional. It did, Your Honor. And he, But upheld the program that came into being after his application, and he hasn't reapplied under the new. But he, but there was a class certified, so I suppose you could substitute another plaintiff, someone who is applying under the current system. Well, well our position, Your Honor, is that because the class was certified with respect to Mr. Hammaker, uh, that that's sufficient that if the, if the system is found unconstitutional, he is an adequate class representative. Sure, certainly. Uh, one of the critical things uh, that is demonstrated in this case is how easy it is for one system to be disguised as another. What has happened in this case is that for five years, again, the university defended the system with its facially separate admissions guidelines, with its reserve seats, and then uh, in two years into this case, in fact, was still using some of these particular forms in its admissions policy. Uh, it is an indication, I think, of how difficult it is to conclude that what we have here is a system that, for example, comports with what Justice Powell uh, indicated he, was, he approved of in the, in the, in the Baki case. What we have here is a system that was, is not nearly tailored to achieve any governmental interest, any compelling governmental interest. I would like, if I may, to return to the issue of diversity, uh, and the diversity issue as a, as a compelling uh, state interest. The fundamental problem with the diversity rationale is that it depends upon the standardless discretion of educators. It is a discretion that would be exercised in a number of different respects. Uh, and we need to be clear about this. The university and its amicus have all made it clear that in their judgment, they ought to be entitled to use race as much as necessary in their educational discretion. 
If that is the rule that we end up accepting, then universities are free in their discretion to choose which races are discriminated against, which are favored. We can have one institution that discriminates against one group of individuals and another against another. We can have, with, this, with shifting fashions and, and preferences and time, the preferences for the races can shift. An example of that is found in comparing the facts of this case to the Baki case, where in Baki, Asian Americans were included in the preference, and under the University of Michigan systems, they are excluded. The, ex the exercise of discretion will extend to who's identified in a particular race. It will be for educators to decide whether someone of a mixed race is someone that is entitled to a preference. You can have the anomalous situation under the university's guidelines, for example, where someone who is both half white and half black. How, do, how does the University of Michigan decide those things? Do they, is it just a self-reporting type of system on the application? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. It's a matter essentially of self-identification. So if someone of mixed race who's white and black identifies mm -hmm. themselves as white, uh, then as far as the university is concerned, they don't bring the diversity that they're looking for. If that person identifies themselves as black, then merely from that identification, uh, they have uh, fallen within the diversity that the university seeks. And the reasoning I don't quite understand is what difference does it make to your client whether there are three or four races or five or six races as long as she's not one of them? Well, it seems to me, Your Honor, it, uh, the problem she's is... She's equally being discriminated against as a Caucasian no matter how many other races are preferred. That's true, Your Honor. I, I raised the point because it, it indicates how standardless this interest is. Uh, it is not defined with respect to any constitutional principle, like, for example, an interest based on remedying discrimination. It is entirely discretionary with the university. So is it entirely discretionary when you read a set of exam books? You know, it's highly subjective, which is a little better than it's often. I'd make a mistake as a professor. So, so the fact that there aren't right, written down standards is, is I'm, I'm not sure of the constitutional relevance of that. When what you're trying to do is something lawyers don't normally do, which is to select among people, individually considered, which one is better for this particular slot. Business people do that. Lawyers don't, except when they're hiring. Uh, but, but I don't, I, you, if you said to a business person this doesn't have standards such a thing, I think they might laugh and say, my job in experience is to select who's better for this slot. So, so I'm not sure of the constitutional relevance uh, of what you say, which seems to me to grow out of the nature of the problem. Well, again, Justice Breyer, the constitutional relevance derives from the fact that we're talking about a constitutional right here, the use of race, which is not the same thing. Yes, as yes, but I mean, as Justice Stevens just said, the constitutional problem consists of the injury to your client, and that injury is the same, irrespective of the precise nature of the standards on the other side. And, and what, what I'm sort of struggling for here is I see your point if you say you cannot use race at all, period, no matter what. That's a, that's a clear position, which I think is one of your positions. But once you depart from that, now uh, I'm, I'm interested in the detail. At that point, I'm not quite sure the relevance of what you're saying. Well, Your Honor, what I'm suggesting is the Court itself has made clear that for an interest to be compelling, one of the considerations that the Court must look at is whether there are standards, independent, ascertainable standards, apart from the discretion exercised by, say, an employer to determine whether the interest is one that's compelling and one that the Court can oversee. 
that interest, that standard, that, that standard exists, for example, when we have an interest in remedying identified discrimination. The Court has made it clear that what can be done in that case is you can measure the extent to which there has been past discrimination. That's not a matter of discretion for the employer to decide. And once you've measured the extent of that discrimination, you can tailor your remedy to that interest. Mr. That Caldwell, because you mentioned the employer and the employer's uh, judgment, uh, I gathered from your brief that this case is not simply about public universities. Employment, because you bring up 1981 and you bring up Title VI, under Title VI, this case is as much about Harvard as it is about Michigan. Isn't that true? The same standard would apply, Justice Ginsburg. That's correct. And, it, and in the private sector, employment in the private sector is 1981. So there, too. So this case is much larger than private public public universities. It's all colleges and universities, and it's the entire realm of employment, if you're right. Well, Your Honor, I want to be clear about what it is that we're arguing for here today. We are not suggesting an absolute rule forbidding any use of race under any circumstances. What we are arguing is that the interest asserted here by the university, this amorphous, ill-defined, unlimited interest in diversity, is not a compelling interest. Nothing we argue today and nothing we seek to do today would undo the Court's precedents that have recognized that something but, uh, like this. You are arguing that anything except remedies for past discrimination is impermissible. Your Honor, that is not a conclusion that we need to follow from this Court's decision. No, I, I think that's your position, is it not? That the only permissible use of race is as a remedy for past discrimination. I would not go that far, Justice Stevens. There may be other reasons. I think they would have to be extraordinary and rare, perhaps rising to the level of life or limb. We do know that the Court has recognized past identified discrimination. And what about was... Weber to take a specific case? Employment setting, the employer says, I don't want to confess to having been a past discriminator, but I'm willing to engage in this voluntary affirmative action. I take it that that would be impermissible if we adopt your view. Weber, as I understand it, is a Title VII case, Your Honor, and it's not implicated by this decision. But there's 1981, then the, then the person who is attacking it on grounds that it's racially discriminatory, just says my lawsuit is under 1981, which it could be as well as Title VII. And then what is the result? Well, it seems to me, Your Honor, that if the Court could resolve the issue consistent with Title VII, which has a remedial if the frame. suit is brought under 1981, if the, the Court can decide what the plaintiff's no. complaint should be? No. If this Court decides this case under Section 1981, the only interest asserted here, at least, is an interest in diversity that we are asking to strike down. It may be that there is some other interest, including a remedial one, that would be justified under some other statute. But the issue but there is not was presented. No, this, this was a voluntary affirmative action plan, no admission of prior discrimination. I gather if someone brought a 1981 suit to stop that, your theory is that that person would prevail. The use of race to achieve non-remedial objectives, I think, would have problems, Your Honor. So Congress wanted race to be considered by private uh, institutions, such as Harvard and whatnot. If there's a problem with 1981 or any of the other federal statutes, they can simply amend it. it, it what the, the only thing that the Constitution applies to is state action. Right? That, that's correct. That's and the all the rest is simply uh, uh, Congress's decision to uh, impose a similar restriction upon private actors, which, which decision it can change if it wishes. That's my understanding, Your Honor. Or suppose you say you use the word extraordinary as compelling justification. 
and the other side says, yes, extraordinary, we're 280 million people, we have uh, large uh, uh, racial diversity within the country, the world is even more diverse, and we think from the point of view of business, the armed forces, law, etc., that this is an extraordinary need to have diversity among elites throughout the country, that without it, the country will be much worse off. That's what we're being told. In fact, the country might not function well at all. And we have to train those people. We have to. All right, now, how can you say or can you say that isn't extraordinary? That isn't a question of life or limb for the country. It isn't really that necessary when so many people are telling us the contrary. Your Honor, because there are important constitutional rights at stake, and those rights are the right to equal protection. And a mere social benefit, that is having more minorities in particular occupations or the school, simply doesn't rise to the level of compelling interest. Uh, It's simply not — it it doesn't remedy a constitutional value. So so if the university president or the dean uh, told you just what Justice Breyer said, uh, you would tell them there's nothing — and that we have underrepresentation of minorities — you would tell them there's nothing you can do about it. I would say, Your Honor, that racial preferences are not the answer. If there are problems, again, in not getting a sufficient number of — if minorities are not competing at the same level as other racial groups, then we should should take steps to solve that problem. But racial preferences, because they injure the rights of innocent people, because it's a prohibition contained in our Constitution, simply aren't permissible to remedy that problem. If I may reserve the remainder of my time, Mr. Chief Justice. Very well, Mr. Kobo. General Olson, I hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the University of Michigan Admissions Program has created a separate path and a separate door for preferred minorities. For those groups, if they meet basic qualifications, their path is always clear and their door is always open. Non-preferred racial groups face rigorous competition to get through the other door. The university admits that race is such an overarching factor in its admissions process that virtually every qualified underrepresented minority applicant will be admitted. The 20-point bonus, which is one full grade point, nearly twice the benefit of a perfect SAT score, uh, and six times better than an outstanding essay, That bonus is actually unnecessary, the way the plan actually works, because every qualified candidate who gets the bonus gets into the university. It might just as well be an admissions ticket. The university acknowledges that its pre-1999 admissions program used separate grids, separate qualifications, separate standards, and protected seats they acknowledge that this system, was, which was held unconstitutional and was not challenged, yet they stipulated that the only changes that they made from that system affected only the mechanics, not the substance of how race and ethnicity were considered in the admissions process. First, the changes were sufficient to convince the district judge that it was on the other side of the constitutional line. Notwithstanding the fact that the the university we, — we respectfully disagree with that conclusion because the, the university itself admitted that it only changed the mechanics. It intended to produce yeah, but isn't, the same isn't, outcome. Isn't mechan- I mean, mechanics is another word for tailoring. 
And they're saying, we have tailored it differently. Our objectives are the same. We may be reaching those objectives in roughly the, the same proportions. But the argument is an argument about tailoring, and we've changed the tailoring. Well, we submit, Justice Souter, that the changes, which they referred to as mechanics, were cosmetics that ultimately the system was intended to, and they acknowledge, to produce the same outcome as the prior system. Yes, the stipulation is that it did not change the substance of how race and ethnicity were considered. Correct, Justice Justice Kennedy. And what the Court only needs to look at the operation of the system. That 20-point bonus means that if you pass the minimum qualification standards at the University of Michigan, you were admitted. Everyone else, just like in the Davis program, uh, had to compete. Uh, people that were not in the preferred races, who were not on the preferred class, had to compete with one another. It was the same 20 points given socioeconomic status also had 20 points. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. Yeah, athletics, too, I think. Yes, but you couldn't get both. Um, but if you had, whatever your background, whether you were an athlete or not, you got the 20 points solely because of your race. There were other systems that the Constitution doesn't implicate. I thought you got only 120. So That's if you correct. were an athlete, you wouldn't get race. That's correct. But if you, but irrespective of those other factors, um, if you didn't get the 20-point bonus for being an athlete or for socioeconomic conditions, the only thing that was required was to be a member of the preferred race. Like the other programs, that we're hearing today, the, the same state, the same Board of Regents, this plan violates every standard that this Court has set for the examination of racial preferences. It is a thinly disguised quota because there's only one path, a segment. Justice O'Connor put it this way in Croson, a segment of the class reserved exclusively for certain minority groups. It isn't tied to a particular number. It's a segment of the class reserved on the basis of race. It is, it is based upon the stigmatizing notion that if you are a certain race, you think a certain way, or if you're a certain race, you have certain experiences that are what, what What do you say to the argument that, number one, it's not stigmatizing because the box study certainly didn't show that it was, and number two, the objective is not to show that there is a correlation between race and one point of view. The objective is to show students what the correlation or no correlation is between races and points of view. And it seems to me that the Michigan plan is equally consistent with the latter interpretation as with the former. What we're saying is that if you assume that because you are white or you are red or you are brown or you are black, you must have certain experiences and you must have certain um, uh, view the argument I, is that, that you that need to have enough of them to demonstrate that the point of view does not uh, always fit just one person. Well, but, Justice Stevens, the — that was a finding. That's think. a self-contradictory um, rationale that they've come up with. They've said, first of all, you have these characteristics because you're black, and but we must admit enough of you into the class to prove to the other students that, that black isn't the reason you no, have these No, they're saying — Basically that, look — uh, people who have grown up in America and are black, regardless of race — no, not regardless of race <laughs> — regardless of socioeconomic background, have probably, though not certainly, shared the experience of being subject to certain stereotypical reactions from people throughout their lives. Now, 
That may have led them to react one way or another way or not react at all. And indeed, many of the students in our class will have stereotypical reactions. And it's good for them, as well as for everyone else, to rid themselves of those reactions. And we want people in this school of all kinds who are black, because that will be helpful educationally. Now, that's their argument, I think, in that respect. Not the argument that all black people are poor, not the argument that all black people have been discriminated against, not the argument that all black people share a point of view. As I read it, that's their argument. And so your reply to that argument their ar- Well, their argument, A, takes several forms. At one point, it's that. At one point, it's the need to get more people el- elite um, of different backgrounds. Yep. It's oh, a teach. Right. But the, what this Court has said, that racial preferences, racial stereotyping, which it is, uh, is stigmatizing, it's divisive, it's damaging to the, f- the fabric of society, it's damaging to the goal ultimately to eliminate General the problems Lieutenant, that racial discri- discrimination and racial differences have created. We're part of a world, and this problem is a global problem. Other countries operating under the same equality norm have confronted it. Our neighbor to the north, Canada, has, the European Union, South Africa. And they have all approved this kind of, they call it positive discrimination. Do we, they have rejected what you recited as the ills that follow from this. Should we shut that from our view at all, or should we consider what judges in other places have said on this subject. I submit, Justice Ginsburg, that none of those countries has our history, and none of those countries has the 14th Amendment. None of those histories has the history of the statements by this Court, which has examined the question over and over again, that the ultimate damage that is done by racial preferences is such that if there ever is a situation in which such Factors must be used, that they must be extreme. Race-neutral means must be used to accomplish those objectives. Narrow tailoring must be applied. And this, this, these programs fail all of those. General Olson, and do you know whether any of those countries that Justice Ginsburg referred to that have gone down the road of racial preferences, racial entitlements, have ever gotten rid of racial preferences or racial entitlements? There's sir- has it been the road to ultimately a colorblind society, or has it been the road to a society that has percentage entitlements for the various races? Sadly, I believe that that, that is correct, um, Justice Scalia. And let me conclude by saying that the Michigan Law School and the University of Michigan ultimately must make a choice. Uh, it may maintain its elitist as it refers to it, selection process without regard to race, or it may achieve the racial diversity it seeks with race-neutral compromises in its admission standards. But the one thing that it may not do is compromise its admission standards or change its admission requirements for one race and not another. That is forbidden by the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Is it also forbidden for the United States Military Academy? It may well be, Justice Stevens. We're not defending uh, the specifics of those programs, but they have, we have not examined them individually. We, we, we believe that the ultimate solution 
to the problem that race has created, the difference in race has created in this country has got to be, according to what this Court has said, the most neutral race, neutral means possible. Thank you, General Olson. Uh, Mr. Payton, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, um, I think I want to spend just a few minutes briefly setting the record straight on why it is the educational judgment of the University of Michigan that the educational benefits that come from a racially and ethnically diverse student body are crucial for all of our students and why those benefits do not depend in any way on the assumption that, for example, all African Americans think alike. LSNA, our premier undergraduate institution, uh, is an undergraduate college. Most of its entering students come in as 18-year-olds. About two-thirds come from Michigan, uh, and about half from Detroit or the greater Detroit area. Michigan, I think, as everyone knows, is a very segregated half state. Half of the ones who come from Michigan come from Detroit? Yes. Half of our students come from, yes. Uh, Michigan's a very segregated state. Detroit is overwhelmingly black. Uh, its suburbs and the rest of the state are overwhelmingly white. Um, while Michigan is extreme in this regard, um, it's not that extreme from the rest of the country. The university's entering students come from these settings and have rarely had experiences across racial or ethnic lines. That's true for our white students. It's true for our minority students. They've not lived together. They've not played together. They've certainly not gone to school together. The result is often that these students come to college not knowing about individuals of different races and ethnicities, and often not even being aware of the full extent of their lack of knowledge. This gap allows stereotypes to come into existence. Ann Arbor is a residential campus. Just about every single entering student lives on campus in a dorm. On campus, these 18-year-olds interact with students very different from themselves in all sorts of ways, not just race, not just ethnicity, but in all sorts of ways. Students, I think, as we know, learn a tremendous amount from each other. Their education is much more than the classroom. It's in the dorm. It's in the dining halls. It's in the coffee houses. It's uh, in the daytime. It's in the nighttime. It's all the time. Here's how critical mass works in these circumstances. If there are too few African-American students, to take that same example, there's a risk that those students will feel that they have to represent their group, their race. This comes from isolation, and it's well understood by educators. It results in these token students not feeling completely comfortable expressing their individuality. On the other hand, if there are meaningful numbers of African-American students, this sense of isolation dissipates. What, um, Mr. Payne, what is a meaningful number? It's what we've been referring to as critical mass. Okay, what is critical mass? Critical mass is when you have enough of those students so they feel comfortable acting as individuals. How do you know that? I think you know it um, because as educators, the educators see it in the students that come before them. They see it on the campus. Do the professors at the University of Michigan spend a lot of time with the students? Yes, they do. This is an incredibly vibrant and complex campus uh, that has uh, diversity in every conceivable way. Uh, and well, I they think spend a lot of time with them other than lecturing to them. 
They do. Um, in the record, uh, we actually have an expert report that's not uh, contradicted in any way uh, by Professor Roudenbush and by Professor Guerin just on the issue of how do you know uh, when you have enough students in different contexts and circumstances so that there will be these meaningful numbers. What did they say? They said that given the numbers that have been coming through in the last several years, we are uh, just getting to that critical mass. And the way they analyzed it was to look at the circumstances in which students interact, a uh, entering seminar, uh, a dorm context, a student activities context, student newspaper context, to see what would happen if you distribute the students across these small encounter opportunities. Does, does Michigan have, as, as, as some, some schools I know have, that, that schools that have affirmative action program, do, do, does it have a minority dormitory? No. The answer is no. We have uh, dormitories. Like I said, just about every single entering student stays in a dormitory. We do not have any dormitories where your entrance into it is governed by your race. Uh, but we have tremendous uh, representation in our dormitories because everybody has to stay there. Okay? Um, so the answer is... Well, I mean, I, apart from being excluded, if uh, it, uh, it is in fact the residential pattern quite mixed and there are no dormitories that are... You know, just, just as sometimes there, there, there's the, yeah, the, the jocks dormitory. Yeah, the, uh, there, there is really no African American dormitory. The answer is there is no African American dormitory, but it's, uh, you know, the full answer is more complex. After students are there for their first year, uh, they can choose to move off campus. They can choose to stay on campus. Many stay on campus. Many move off campus. Ann Arbor is a college town. And off-campus is actually in the larger campus community. And what they do off-campus is obviously up to the students themselves. But I think that's, you know, that, that's the real world. If you have the meaningful numbers of minority students, what then happens is that students will see a range of ideas, a range of viewpoints from and among those students. And they will then see things that they may not have expected, similarities and differences. And those, in turn, will have the result of undermining stereotypes. Uh, you know, and this happens for the minority students and the white students. This happens for all the students. Uh, you know, the benefits from this affect every single student that comes through. And they're dependent on there being meaningful numbers or a critical mass uh, of minority students or the benefits don't come about. That's the interest that the university is asserting. That's why they think that this is so crucial. Education, understanding, produces citizens and leaders in our complex society. But where we are is there's an assumption, you may not agree with it, but it's a, uh, one beginning assumption in this area, that there may not be a quota. Every, all of the eloquent things you said could be easily met by a quota. That, let's just assume for argument, we cannot do. I have to say that um, in, in looking at your program, it looks to me like this is just a, disguise, a, a disguised quota. You have a, a, a minority student who works very, very hard, very proud of his athletics. He gets the same number of points as a minority person who doesn't have any athletics. That, that, that to me looks like an, an overt quota. 
Here's how our system works, and I believe it's not a quota at all, and I believe I can simply explain this. The way it works, an application comes in, it is um, reviewed on the basis, every single application is uh, read in its entirety by a counselor, every single application. It is, in fact, judged on the basis of the selection index, which has the 20 points for race and 20 points for athletics, but it also has all sorts of other things that it values, in-state, underrepresented state, underrepresented county within Michigan, uh, socioeconomic status, what your school is like, what the curriculum that you took at your school is like, None of that your grades. None of that matters. If you're minimally qualified and you're one of the minority races that gets the 20 points, you're in. Actually, the rest is really irrelevant. The way it works is that every application comes through and it's read in its entirety. It is evaluated, taking all of these factors into account. And then, based upon the number that comes off the selection index, which can go up to 150, the students are all competing against each other. There is a score that is um, uh, evaluated throughout the year because there's an over-enrollment problem that always has to be managed. And if the score is higher, you are in. And that doesn't matter about anything other than what the score is. In addition, the counselor can, uh, on the basis of three factors, uh, see that an application is reviewed by the admissions review committee. Mr. Payton, in your brief, uh, you say the volume of applications and the presentation of applicant information make it impractical for LSA to use the same admission system as the much smaller University of Michigan Law School. Now, uh, you, you're saying that every single application for admission to LSA is read individually? Yes, sometimes twice, um, because every application is read when it comes in, and those that a, a counselor flags that uh, uh, because they find that there's three uh, factors you have to have to flag an application, uh, academically able to do the work, um, above a certain uh, a selection index score, and uh, also contributes at least one of various factors that we want to see in our student body, including uh, underrepresented minority status, but also very high class rank when you and say, a whole range of other when things. When you say underrepresented minorities, what, what comparison are you making to say that it's under, upper, up, underrepresented? I think we're taking uh, that term uh, as the federal government has used it, uh, and the well, reason do, Asians aren't included, just to pick up one of the... Well, how, how does the federal government use it? I think there are three minority groups. Um, uh, you know, um, l- let me just go back and answer well, what, what I, we I think, want. I, I think perhaps I could get a more direct answer. Uh, how do you decide whether, say, African-Americans or Hispanics are, quote, underrepresented, close quote? I think this is actually a very important point. They're underrepresented in our applicant pool. Um, and be, be, compared to what? Compared to um, uh, we have very small pools of African-Americans, for example, uh, that are uh, f- uh, qualified to the extent that uh, we require students to be qualified to do the work at the University of Michigan. And what that means is that if we didn't take race into account, we would not be able to get the numbers of those students, the critical mass necessary for the educational benefits that we want. That's underrepresented. When you say underrepresented, it sounds like something almost mathematical, that you're saying we only have a certain percentage of, and we should have 
this percentage. Well, what, what is this percentage? It's actually not a percentage at all, and it really is uh, driven by the educational benefits that we want from our diverse student body. If we had in our applicant pool sufficient numbers of minority students, African Americans, what is for a sufficient example, number? So that when well, we made our selection, well, I, I asked you, what is a sufficient number? Yes. And answer, would you answer it? A sufficient number so that when we made our selections, we were achieving the critical mass of students that we need for the benefits I described. That is not a fixed, precise number at all, as you've heard. It is, that's simply not the nature of the critical mass. But when you're trying to figure out whether or not in your applicant pool you have sufficient numbers so that the normal operation of our process would yield uh, a critical mass, that's underrepresented. We are underrepresented with respect to Hispanics, with respect to uh, African Americans, and with respect to Native Americans. Because your standards are so high, you say that there are very few of those who can meet your standards. So why don't you lower your standards? Actually, I mean, it, if this is indeed a significant, compelling state interest, why don't you lower your standards? We do have uh, sufficient uh, numbers in our applicant pool uh, to achieve the critical mass that we're achieving. We're not taking, you're right, By we're not taking. By taking race into account, you can do it. But, but we're not taking students that aren't qualified. You're correct about that, Justice yeah, Scalia. But, but just lower your, lower your qualification standards. If, if this value of, of having everybody in a mix with people of other races is so significant to you, just lower your qualifications. You don't have to, to be. Us, but I think you don't have to be the great college you are. You could be a lesser college if that value is important enough to you. I think uh, that decision, uh, which would say that we have to choose, uh, would be a Hobbesian choice here. Uh, our primary institutions of higher education, I'd say, are part of our crown jewels. Uh, we have great educational institutions in this country. The University of Michigan is one of them. I think we are the envy of the world. If we had to say, gee, our educators tell us that it is crucial that for the full education they want for those students, all of those students, we need a diverse student body, that the decision is, oh, gee, we want you to decide to either have a poor education for the um, essentially white students, and or you can say uh, change what you are as an institution. I think we get to decide what our mission is. I think um, uh, the Constitution gives us some uh, leeway in deciding what our mission is and, and how we define ourselves. And anything that contradicts that mission is automatically a compelling state interest. No, I think what we're saying is we can achieve both of those things because, in fact, uh, achieving the educational benefits that come from a uh, diverse student body can be achieved given our mission if we can go about selecting students in a way to achieve the critical mass of minority students that we need. We want both of those things. We you think that. Okay. Are you finished? Yes. Uh, I wanted to go back to Justice Kennedy's question. Uh, the, the point system here, does it meet the uh, opinion of Justice Powell in Bakke when that was called for individualized consideration? Uh, now, the concern that it does not is that you, under this system, would seem to have the possibility that a, two students, one is a minority African-American, one is not, majority, and they seem academically approximately the same, 
and now we give the black student 20 points, and the white student, let's say, is from the poorest family around and is also a great athlete, and he just can't overcome that 20 points. The best he can do is top. And so that's the argument that this is not individualized consideration. And I want to be sure I know what your response is to that argument. I have two responses. Uh, um, uh, the first is to say that it is individualized. If that white student actually uh, was socioeconomically disadvantaged, that could be taken into account. But remember, he has that and gets 20 points for it. Yes. And he also is a great athlete. And I've constructed this example to make it difficult for you. Uh, and, but I, I mean, you see, he can only get 20 points no matter how poor he is and no matter how great an athlete he is as well. And the, let's say, the black student who has neither ties him. Yes. Uh, but on individualized consideration, the black student might lose if there were the individualized consideration. Well, he might. Now, that's, that, and that's still giving him. The, now, what is the answer? The, the answer is that answer. we value both of those aspects of diversity. We want both of those represented in our student body. Uh, if they tie, uh, they will be judged exactly the same as well, far as how the selection is. What you're saying, then, works. is that race is individualized consideration. I'm saying that Otherwise, student, you're saying that only in the hypothetical given that only the white student receives individualized consideration. No, no. They both — Some are more equal than they others. They both receive individualized consideration. Uh, they're both reviewed uh, in their uh, totality. They both may be uh, sent to the Admissions Review Committee where they get a second reading in Baki. Um, if in those circumstances, because we had the white student who's both a good athlete and also — uh, very poor, and the other student, the minority, is not. Could that be sent to the uh, the uh, individual? Could that be sent to the review committee? And the review committee would say, "Well, we have a special circumstance here." And even though the points tie, nonetheless, when we look at it carefully, we see that the white student has these extra pluses, despite the points we let in the white student. The admissions review committee. Um, about 70 percent of the applications that it reviews in any given year are white student applications that are sent to it. Okay. It can reach its judgment irrespective of whatever happened on the selection index. Ah, so they can okay? ignore and they the, can, the, the they can Actually, once it goes to them, they simply look at the application and make a judgment. So I want a clear answer to this. That review committee can look at the applications individually and ignore the points. It does. Yes, the answer, the answer is yes, okay. and it does. In Baki, um, where Justice Powell uh, says that he could look at one example of an admissions policy, and he discusses briefly the Harvard plan, and then he has a long quote from it, there is the footnote 50 that Ms. Mahoney mentioned. In both footnote 50 and footnote 51, there is a citation to this study by Carnegie. And he introduces that by saying in the footnote, there are in this study examples of the uh, uh, actions by other leading institutions trying to get diverse student bodies. That study indicates that there are plenty of other models where, in fact, some effort to come up with a system to handle these different factors was successful. Mr. Payton, it's easy to say they can ignore the points. Easy to say. Do you know of any case where a minority applicant, one of the minorities favored in your program, who was minimally qualified, 
got the 20-point uh, favor and was rejected? I don't know, uh, Justice. Well, it's important. I, I, I mean, to, to, to say theoretically, uh, yeah, it's fine. Yes, theoretically, you can reject it. But as I understand what, uh, what the other side is saying, it is automatic. If you are minimally qualified and you get those 20 points, you are in. That's what they claim. Actually. Now, do, do you assert that that is false? That, that is not correctly describing what happens. The way the policy works and the way it is implemented is, I, is ha- how I describe the policy. In fact, the results of the policy uh, are that uh, most of the qualified minority applicants do end up getting admitted. That's not the design. The design is here's how you do it, here's how the uh, decisions are made, either on the selection index score. Some are sent to the admissions review committee. Most of those that are sent to the admissions review committee are, in fact, uh, not minority applications. But the design is not, gee, admit all qualified minorities. The design is to take these different factors into account in order to achieve the student body that we think is crucial. So there are some qualified minorities who get the 20 points and who are rejected. I believe that is the case. All the uh, record says in this is that virtually all of the minority students, as a result of the uh, policy, ended up being admitted. I think there are certainly some, I can't give you one, I can't give you one, but there are certainly some where if you work it out, you can see that won't happen. But the design is to admit a higher percentage of the qualified minority applicants that you get, given the numbers that there are today, because if you don't do that, you won't get your mix. The design is to make sure we uh, get to the critical mass of the meaningful numbers, and given the small pool size we have, uh, the way it operates is as you just described. But that's the way it operates. The design is to make sure we get the critical mass of students that are, in fact, necessary for the educational benefits that we are asserting here. Has anyone at Michigan ever defined critical mass as being anything more specific than something beyond token numbers? Um, I think that uh, the reason I referenced the um, two expert reports uh, by Professor Roudenbush and Professor Guerin is to try to see this. Th- th- those two reports try to put this in sort of an everyday example. You know, students don't interact with the student body as a whole. They interact in small settings. And it's to see if you see what our minority student population is, how that would distribute into these small settings. And on the basis of how that distribution works, uh, Professor Guerin looked at it to see whether or not that looked like that would be generating the interactions that she would expect for these educational benefits. But in, in, the, in, in the criteria used by the admissions committee, did anyone put a percentage figure or a specific number no. beyond the no. concept, you've got to get more than just token representation? No. The answer is no. And, uh, and can, do you know the origin of critical mass that is being spoken of here as though it were something that were invented? I know it goes back at least with respect to the enrollment of women in law school. The schools talked about we want to get a critical mass so women will feel welcome because when they were one at a time curiosities, they did have to do, as you said, defend. They were representatives of their sex, and if they failed, all women failed. Once they had a critical mass, it was no longer necessary. The woman was free to be who she was. But that term, I certainly was familiar with that term used in that setting. It's 
It comes from sociology, doesn't it? It does, and I think you've described it exactly as it has come about with respect to um, uh, diversity and critical mass. Uh, In the Harvard plan, in Justice Powell's discussion of the Harvard plan, he clearly acknowledges, because the plan acknowledges, that you must have meaningful numbers, and uh, it means more than token numbers. And there's clearly an acknowledgement that if you have too few numbers, you get the dynamics of isolation that you just discussed. In the law school context, there was testimony, I think, from one of the admissions officers that said 5 percent is too few, 10 percent might suffice. And he's talking in respect to what is a critical mass. Now, do people coalesce around numbers like that, or is that just out of what do I do with that piece of testimony? Um, I think that, you know, all of this, you know, there's a false precision here that everybody wants, which is tell me exactly what this is. And I don't think it exactly works like that. You know, we have a lot of experience as, you know, an educational institution about what has happened on our campus and what has worked. The class that we've had, the entering classes that we've had over the last four years or so, have ranged from 12 percent to 17 percent. Okay, 12% to 17%. I'm not saying it's a percent, and I'm not saying it's that fixed range, but 12% to 17% is sort of how it is ranged. And that has generated the representation in these small groups that is what is working to achieve some of these educational benefits that we're talking about. But it's not quite that precise as far as how all of this works. Let me ask Justice O'Connor's question. When, when does all of this come to an end? Um, I think um, that we all certainly uh, expect it to come to an end. I think we're all quite surprised. If we looked back at Baki in 1978, I think all of us would be quite surprised from that vantage point to realize that today in Michigan, uh, students live in such segregated circumstances growing up. Uh, it's really quite unbelievable. We could not have foreseen that. I think people thought that we were coming together in a way, and that hasn't occurred. That's created some educational challenges and opportunities. Um, the test score gap, I think, is narrowing. That's, we put that in our, uh, our, our brief. I think we're all quite optimistic about how this is uh, going to progress. There is progress. I think the pool is increasing. Uh, but I can't give you how long is it going to last. I think we're all quite confident that it's only going to last for X number of finite years. I just can't answer with any precision Suppose the that court, question either. Suppose the court were to say that uh, the 20-point system and the law school system look just too much like a quota and that quotas are impermissible. Uh, as of that point, is it our burden to tell you what other systems to use, or is it your burden to come up with some other system, say, more individualized assessment, in order to attain some of the goals you wish to attain? I guess I'm um, not sure um, what the more individualized assessment would be here. Uh, I'm not saying that, obviously, there are things that could be done differently. We've done things differently. The two schools do things quite differently. But I think we're both trying to achieve the critical mass that I think there's no dispute at all from anyone that the critical mass is essential to get the educational benefits that we're talking about. If this goal is a compelling interest, then critical mass is essential to its attainment given the small pool size that we're talking about. 
Can it be crafted in another way? Obviously, from the amicus briefs, there are a lot of schools that do it in different ways. We're doing it in a very individualized way that, in fact, does allow students to compete. Every student is evaluated on the same criteria, you know, head-to-head. We do take race into account in the way that you've heard described, but I'm not sure that lacks the individuality that you would be striving for. This is... You know, an enormously important case when Justice Powell said in Bakke that it's not too much to say that the nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to the ideas and mores of students as diverse as this nation of many peoples. I think that statement was absolutely correct then. I think it is, you know, it has never been truer than it is today. This is of enormous importance and correct not just to the University of Michigan, but I'd say to all of higher education and I think to our country as a whole to be able to do things that bring us together, that bring us understanding, that result in tolerance, and I'd say make us uh, the uh, more closer to the day that we all uh, look forward to when, in fact, we are beyond some of these problems that we've been discussing uh, rather intensely here today. Peyton, do you think that your admission standards overall at least provide some headwind uh, to the efforts that you're talking about? Yes, I do. I think they do in all sorts of ways. They are certainly producing uh, uh, black students, white students, Hispanic students, Native American students who go out into our communities and change their communities. You may have misunderstood me. I mean, the Ms. Mahoney said earlier that the problem of law school admissions in response to Justice O'Connor, that it was for the elite schools. It was more a problem at the elite schools when she was talking about Boltall, for example. You meant, you suggested or alluded to in your comment, your argument today that, you know, you don't want to choose between being an elite school and the whole diversity issue. It, would it be easier to accomplish the latter if the former were adjusted, that is, the overall admission standard? I think that... Now, I know you don't want to make the choice, but will you at least acknowledge that there's a tension? I think that, you know, some of our other schools, uh, the non-selective schools, actually uh, some can end up with completely undiverse populations as well. Uh, that the fact that a school does not have selectivity doesn't mean that the community college, in fact, is diverse. Um, so I don't think it necessarily follows at all that if you lower your standards and distribute this all across the country, we will get these educational benefits, you know, throughout our educational system. Now, about uh, ten terms ago, we had the University of Mississippi higher ed case up yes. here. And the argument was made that the historically, the HBCs, the historically black colleges, uh, provided a different benefit to minorities. Would the same arguments with respect to diversity apply to those institutions? Yes. You mean, do they benefit if they had a uh, racially and ethnically diverse student body? I believe most every single one of them do have diverse student bodies. Thank you, Mr. Payton. Um, Mr. Kobo, you have two minutes remaining. You have three minutes remaining. With respect to the point system, Council has made it sound as if it's sort of a fortuity that the University of Michigan has an admission system that ends up admitting, admitting virtually all minority students. 
In fact, I want to talk a little bit about the record here. Uh, we put in the record the guidelines from the original system that was in place in 1995 and 1997. At the joint appendix at uh, page 80, uh, it's made very clear uh, that the guidelines were set in 1995 when Jennifer Gratz applied to admit all qualified minority students. It's also undisputed in this record that the way the university got to the 20 points was to t- statistically design it based on the old model. So what they've done is they've taken the old guidelines that were set to admit all qualified minority students, statistically figured out how many points they needed to give to, give to students under the new system to replicate the old system, and that's how we ended up with 20 points. So it, it strikes me as disingenuous to suggest that it's simply an accident. These policies have a purpose. They grant a preference for a purpose. And the new system does what the old system did, did which is to create a two-track system. It's not enough if you're Jennifer Gratz or Patrick Hamaker to be merely qualified to get admitted to the university. To be admissible is not simply enough because of their skin color. If, however, you're a member of one of the minority students and you meet those minimum qualifications, that's sufficient. If that's not a two-track system, I can't imagine what one, what one would actually look like. With respect to test scores, a question was made, a question was asked about how long are these systems going to last. There's actually evidence, and this was not put in the, ev- in the record by the university with respect to test scores and disparities, but there's, there's also opposing opinion, which has indicated that as long as we have these preferences, they create perverse incentives. We've cited the work of John McCorder, for example, in our reply brief, indicating that test scores, to the extent that they're not narrowing or to the extent that the gaps are increasing, may in fact be to the fact, due to the fact of these, of these preferences. With respect to the Hobbesian choice that Mr. Payton has talked about, they have resolved a different Hobbesian choice. The university has decided that they are willing to lower their academic standards to get their critical mass. They've resolved that, criti- that Hobbesian choice that way. But they've resolved the other Hobbesian choice, how to get those objectives and stay selective, They've resolved that Hobbesian choice on the backs of the constitutional rights of individuals like Jennifer Gratz and Patrick Hamaker. They are the ones that are paying for the Hobbesian choice that the university has resolved by the use of a two-track admission system. With respect to the concept of critical mass, all I have to say, if one can't ascertain from the way it's defined, meaningful means sufficient, sufficient means critical, critical means sufficient, That meets the definition, it seems to me, of an interest that's too amorphous, too ill-defined, too indefinite, just like the role model theory, just like a remedy for societal discrimination, too indefinite to support the use of a compelling interest, to to use, uh, uh, to be a basis for racial preferences. Thank you, Mr. Kobo. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.